I love the Cosby Show. But I actually showed that not just because it was funny, but because it reminds me of the passage we're looking at tonight. Uh, the reason is, Theo, the, the teenager, he's planning on what's life going to look like after high school, and he thinks, no problem, I got it under control. And so what um, Bill Cosby does, or Dr. Huxable does, is he goes through and he says, well, let's just look at the budget, and we'll pull out the money, and you see, it actually is a problem. You're actually not going to, you're not going to be able to make it the way you think. And that's what is happening in our passage tonight. We've been talking about what does it take to get into the kingdom of heaven. And the Jews thought, no problem, I got this. And so Jesus is going to open up the law like a budget, and he's going to say, it actually is a problem. You don't stack up quite as well as you think you did. He's going to say you shouldn't be quite so confident. Before we get into the passage, let me, uh, let me actually back up a little bit and just remind you of where we've been so that you can have some context before we read it together. Remember that Jesus, in Matthew chapter 4, had started drawing his disciples, his followers, and he drew his disciples from what we thought was the most unlikely place. He went to Galilee, into Capernaum, and he started drawing fishermen, people that weren't political leaders and they weren't spiritual leaders. In fact, Galilee was called, um, Matthew wrote that this was a dark place, Galilee of the Gentiles. So this is a spiritually dark place, and Jesus comes in and he's calling people that are out of darkness to be his followers. But we've got to remember that this is still Jewish culture. So there's still people that are looking around and they're thinking, this doesn't add up. Right? How can Jesus say that the spiritual people that are going to follow him are going to be people who haven't kept the law? Right? Shouldn't the people who get into the kingdom of heaven be the people, not the people who are the dirty people, the immoral people, shouldn't the people who get into heaven be the law keepers, not the law breakers? And so Jesus is going to introduce this section by saying, let me explain to you who gets into heaven. It is the people who keep the law, but it's not the way you think. In fact, when you look at your own life and think, I've kept the law, so no problem, it is a problem. You are in a more dangerous position than you realize. Let's read the passage together. I'm going to start, this is a really long passage. We're going to start in verse 17, and we're going to go through the end of chapter 5. So that's all the way through verse 48. And what you're going to see is there are laws and rules galore, a lot of them. It's going to take us a long time to read them, and it's going to feel oppressive because there's so many rules, but that's the point. This, there is a, if you're going to get to heaven by keeping these laws... You need to understand how oppressive they are. So let's start reading. In verse 17, Don't assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For I assure you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches people to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
You've heard it said to our ancestors, do not murder. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And everyone who says to his brother, fool, will be subject to the Sanhedrin. But whoever says, you moron, will be subject to hellfire. So if you're offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him, or your adversary will hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the officer, and you'll be thrown into prison. And I assure you, you will never get out of there until you've paid the last penny. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone that looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, then gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than your whole body going to hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you that everyone who divorces his wife, except in the case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard it said that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, Don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, because it's God's throne, or by earth, because it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great king. Neither should you swear by your head, because you cannot make a single hair on your head, white or black. But let your word yes be yes, and your no be no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat too. And if anyone forces you to go one mile with him, go too. Give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow you. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? And then the conclusion, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. Dear Lord, the temptation that we all have is to be cavalier and to think that no problem, we've got this under control, and to think of ourselves as more capable than we really are, to think of ourselves more highly than we really are. And these laws remind us that we have failed utterly to keep your commandments. Pray today that you'll give us eyes to see that you will help us feel the weight of your law upon us and that that will humble us, but also that it will motivate us to strive to the holiness that you have modeled before us. 
Teach us to love you and to obey you. In your name I pray. Amen. All right. It's a lot, a lot to process. So let's just start with some general observations, some big ideas. And the first one is that we're still talking about the same thing we've been talking about. We're still talking about who can get into the kingdom of heaven. Remember that the Sermon on the Mount starts with the poor, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are uh, you when men persecute you, for your reward in heaven is great. We're still talking about who gets into the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus' sermon hasn't changed topics. He's talking about a different facet of who gets into heaven, but we're still talking about who gets into heaven. The second thing I want to observe is that getting into heaven has something to do with keeping the law. And this is the part that's most surprising to us because the first four of the Beatitudes says that no one has kept the law good enough to get into heaven. And it's the person who realizes that they are poor in spirit or that they're hungry and thirsty for righteousness. It's the person who realizes that they haven't done a good enough job. They're the people who will actually get in. So when Jesus says you have to keep the law to get into heaven, that's startling to us. I think it'll make more sense as we go through, but we do have to recognize Jesus does say here that no one gets into heaven outside of keeping the law. That I didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets. Not one jot or tittle, not the smallest stroke of the letter is going to pass away. And he says, and whoever doesn't keep this law or teaches other people not to keep it, they're going to be the least in the kingdom of heaven. And we're going to see that means you're not getting in. And it's whoever does keep the law. That's who's great in the kingdom of heaven. Right? Keeping the law is related to getting into heaven. And here is the last point we see. Is it's not just kind of keeping the law. He says you have to be really, really good at it. He says unless your righteousness is greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not get into the kingdom of heaven. Now, that should strike us as intense, but it might not if you don't know who the scribes and Pharisees are. So let me back up a little bit, and let's talk about who are these scribes and Pharisees that we have to be more righteous than. A scribe, remember that in the New Testament times when Jesus was alive, no copy machines existed. There's no printers existed, right? Gutenberg hadn't made the printing press yet. Every time that a Bible was copied, it went into a scriptorium, and there was a man who would sit there, and his job was a scribe. He would copy the Old Testament over and over and over so that everyone who had a Bible had it because there was a scribe who wrote it for them. So the people in the Jewish community who knew the Bible better than anyone else, they're scribes. That's their job. They write the Bible over and over and over and over by hand. These are the guys who know the Bible. And most scribes would have also been considered Pharisees. Because what a Pharisee is, is not a job, but it's kind of a worldview. A Pharisee is how you viewed yourself. And specifically, a Pharisee is a person who loved the law. And they felt that the Jewish people had walked away from it, and they were a group that were calling people back to their origins, calling them back to law-keeping. 
And the Pharisees are people who are really, really serious about keeping the law. So there was actually a Pharisee who was a scribe um, that I read about, well, I guess a couple months ago. He was, a Pharise- he was a Pharisee and he's a scribe, and he made this law. And I'll just use it to illustrate how serious they were. So you know that the Sabbath for Jews starts on Friday night at sundown, and it goes till sa- uh, Saturday night on sundown. But if you're a scribe, you work inside, right? Because you can't take out the manuscripts outside. They might get messed up. So you work inside, and you may not have access to know whether or not sundown has started. And they said, well, what would happen if accidentally we're working as scribes and we didn't realize that we missed sundown? Then we wouldn't have kept our Sabbath holy. And we wouldn't have, you know, we would have broken the law. So what they do is the Pharisees would say, we put fences around the law so that we, it's that much harder for us to even break it. So the Pharisees, the scribes that were Pharisees said, we won't even copy the Bible until afternoon on Friday just so we're not accidentally copying it once the Sabbath actually starts. They're so serious about keeping the law that they give themselves extra laws to make sure that they don't accidentally break the laws. Like These are the most serious law keepers in the whole world. So if you're a Jewish person listening to Jesus and he says, if, you're, if you want to get into heaven, your righteousness has to surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees, you think, they're the best of the best. They're the people who never, ever do anything wrong. So the thing, put yourself in this mindset. Who, in your mind, this is, the, this is the person who would never sin. I can never imagine this person sinning. That's who they're talking about. For me, when I was growing up, that was my grandfather. My mom's dad, I looked at him as this pillar of righteousness who never did anything wrong. Right, And so whenever he would come over, we would make sure that we had turned the channel to make sure there was only Christian TV on because he, he never sinned, and we didn't want him to know that we did. So we always did things because he was perfect, right? And so Jesus is saying, if you wanted to get into heaven, you have to be more righteous even than your grandfather was. I think, well, I can't do that. I can't be as righteous as my grandfather. He, the bar, that bar is way too high. But that's the point. If you want to get into heaven by keeping the law, you have to understand this bar is high. And so that's when Jesus says, let's break out the law, and we're going to walk through it just like a budget. Just like Dr. Hustle says, okay, this is how much it's going to cost to live in Manhattan, so how much it's going to cost to eat, so how much it's going to cost to have a girlfriend. Right? So he's, Jesus breaks up the law and says, this is what it's going to take to do not murder. Right? If you want to keep the do not commit adultery, that means never committing, that's never lusting after someone in your heart. And he just walks through the law and says, this, if you really think you're going to keep the law, let's go through and show what that is. I don't think that we have enough time to walk through all six of these. So what I want to do is I'm going to give you a summary of the six just tell you what they are. And I want to really zero in on just the first one. But let me tell you this about the six. What they're called, a lot of scholars call them the six antithesis. It's, I think it's a bad name. An antithesis is a word that we say, if one person says, hey, this is, this is black, if you say the antithesis, you would say it's white. That's when you say the opposite, right? You think one thing, I think the other. 
And so they're saying that Jesus says, you've heard it said, do not murder. Well, I'm going to tell you something else. But what Jesus says is an antithesis. He's not ever contradicting the law. He's saying the law is that and so much more. Right? So Jesus doesn't say, you've heard it said, do not murder, but I say murder. He says, you've heard it said, do not murder, but I tell you, even if you're angry with somebody, that's like murdering. Right? So rather than calling these the sixth antithesis, which a lot of scholars do, we should... I don't know another name, but we should call them the six, the law's bigger and badder than you even thought it was. It just doesn't flow well. But do you understand what's going on? There's six reasons why the law is harder for you to keep than you ever dreamed. Six reasons, six examples of why the law is harder for you to keep than you ever imagined. So let's just look at just the, we'll just look at the first one. We're going to look at Jesus' teaching on murder. And the reason I picked this is, one, is Jesus spends more time on this one than any of the others. So we're going to get to see Jesus' full logic here of what he's doing. Two is we can apply these same principles of interpretation to the next five. So if we understand this one, it'll help us that when we study these on our own, we'll understand what's going on in the next five. It's a good example for us to reach on. And, and three is I think that this one is the one that most of us would say, I've never broke this. Were you here on the children's night when uh, Miss Amy and Miss Cheryl asked, has anybody committed murder? And I think they were talking to you saying, who's a murderer? And no one would say they were a murderer. She would say, keeping the law of do not murder is harder than you think. That's what we're going to see. So we're going to break it down into three sections. Verse 21 and verse 22 are going to just explain what it means to not murder. And we're going to see it's harder than we think. And we're going to see the, the penalty for breaking this law is more severe than we think. Then in verses 23 and 24, we're going to see an example. If you're going to take serious an application of how to not murder, this is what it's going to look like in your life. And you're going to see that's hard. And then in verses 24 and 25, Jesus is going to give us an analogy of why it is so dangerous for us to think we can get to heaven by keeping the law. So let's start. Let me read for, for you verses 21 and 22. I'm going to take a sip of water. Okay. You've heard it said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And whoever says to his brother, fool, will be subject to the Sanhedrin. And whoever says, moron, will be subject to hellfire. And in these verses, we're going to see two main points. The law is harder to keep than you think. And the penalty for breaking the law is more intense than you think. What do we mean that the law is harder to keep than you think. Someone would say, I'm right. The sixth commandment, I've never broken it because I've never murdered someone. And what Jesus is going to say is that the law doesn't just restrict your actions. It restricts your heart. The reason that the law is so hard to keep is because the moment in which you have murderous thoughts in your heart, you're a lawbreaker. 
The moment in which your heart has murderous thoughts, you are guilty of being a murderer. And then Jesus defines murderous thoughts as name-calling, as anger, as bitterness. Whenever you say someone's a fool or an idiot or a moron, you are guilty of being a murderer in your heart. Which means that, real life example, we were at Chick-fil-A the other day and somebody cut me off to get in line in front of me in the drive through And I said, that idiot. <laughs> Why did they do that? I was so mad. I was so mad. They cut me off to get in front of me at Chick-fil-A. And we're stewing. So like, you know, we're waiting. It's probably five minutes before we finally get to the window. And I'm just stewing on it and getting madder and madder at how this person has no respect for traffic patterns. <laughs> and we get up to the window and the lady hands us, Ken and I had ordered milkshakes, and the lady hands us our milkshakes, and she said, the lady in front of you has already paid for them, and said she's sorry for cutting you off. <laughs> and so that was when hot coals were poured on my head. And I realized I had become, I was a murderer in my heart. According to this standard, I said, that woman's an idiot. And God said, you are subject to hellfire for saying that. That's a weird thing. Like for the whole week, I thought, eh, that's really funny that I called this lady an idiot. But Jesus says, you're subject to hellfire. I mean, that's, the law is harder to keep than I think. Because as soon as somebody cuts me off, I break it. But it's also not just a funny example. It's, it's a scary example. Because I'm subject to hellfire for this, and I've broken the law. The law is harder to keep than you think, and the penalty for breaking it is much more intense than you realize. Look at verse 23 and 24. Jesus is going to give you an example. You want to know what it looks like to keep this law? This is your example. So, so... If you're offering a gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar and first go and be reconciled with your brother and then come and offer your gift. Let me make two observations about this example. The first is the angry person isn't even, you're not even the angry person. Someone's just angry at you. And so you leave and go make restitution. But that still means your heart's involved. And the reason I think this is, is because if I know that someone is angry at me, and I know that the penalty of this anger is hellfire, and I don't want to go make restitution, I don't want to go make things right, then I have a murderous heart. If I don't care that there is division between me and someone else, that's on love. So even if I'm not the bitter one, if somebody's bitter at me, if I love this person, if I want to be a non-murderous person, I have to go make this right. But this is what's crazy. Look at how he has to go make it right. Remember, we're in Capernaum. We're on the Sermon on the Mount. That's in Galilee. And he says, if you're offering a sacrifice at the temple, the temple is all the way in Jerusalem. That's a, a little over 80 miles. Now, that's 80 miles in a time where you're walking to Jerusalem. Maybe you're on a donkey, but you're talking about a two- or three-day journey with your family. 
and your livestock that you're bringing with you to make a sacrifice. You're talking about a two to three day journey. You've traveled two to three days to make this sacrifice, and then you remember, yeah, there's somebody back home that's mad at me. You don't even make your sacrifice. You go home, and you make it right, and then you come back. Right, just to put that in perspective, that would be like, since we have cars, it's a little bit farther away, that would be like if we traveled all the way to California, and we're on a vacation on California, and we go to a church in California, and we want to participate in that worship service. We want to worship God, maybe through giving our offering at that service. And we remember, there's somebody back, there's someone back in McClenny who's angry at me. I don't even offer, I don't even give my money in the plate. I get in my car, I drive the two or three days back to McClenny, I make it right. Then I go all the way back to California so I can give my gift in the offering plate, and then I come back home. That's just impractical. Right? This is not something that we can actually do. This is not practical, is it? To drive five, six days in order to Mend a relationship? Jesus is saying, keep, if you want to keep the law of do not murder, you need to understand this is not an easy thing to do. It's an impractical commandment. You're not going to be able to do it. Then look at the next analogy. It gets even harder. He's going to say it's not only that it's so hard to do, it's a... It, it, more of a metaphor, it's not only that it's hard to do, but the penalty of breaking this is severe. He says in verses 25 and 26, reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him, or your adversary will hand you over to the judge, the judge to the officer, and then you will be thrown in prison. I assure you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penalty. I'm sorry, the last penny. Now, at first we think, where's this coming from, right? Walking with an adversary, that's not what we were talking about. We were talking about making sacrifices in church or at the temple, and now he's switched topics, but it's not really a topic switch. It's an explanation. We just need to remember a couple of things, and it will make a lot of sense. One is that the story is a metaphor. Two is in this metaphor, God is the judge, right? And three... When we come to God in worship, we're simultaneously stepping before the judge who decides our eternal destiny. So he's saying, do you really want to show up at a church service before the God who decides your eternal destiny while you have a murderous heart on your record? Is that wise? I read a story. You see, sometimes on the news you see the world's dumbest criminals. Have you seen those? There was one guy named Wesley Taylor, and he had moved. I think he was originally from Chicago, but he moved out to San Bernardino, California. And this happened, I think, about a year ago. He was uh, somehow got mixed up in the wrong group, and he was dealing drugs there. And he had somehow got a bag that had 13 pounds of marijuana in his, in his duffel bag. And he's running down the street, and he's being chased by these guys who are out, he thinks, to kill him. So he's running down the street, 
13 pounds of marijuana, and he's running. And in San Bernardino, they have these big, the parking lots have these big gates that kind of slide to the side. And he sees his gate sliding shut, and he dips in there just before it shuts. So the guys that are chasing him are stuck outside. And he starts to breathe, and he thinks, I've got out. You know, I'm safe. I'm, I'm in this gated community here. And he looks up, and he realized that he just broke into the police headquarters of San Bernardino, California. <laughs> These guys see him running and breathing in a bag, and he, gets, he loses his mind. He decides he's going to run away from them, and he tries to go jump over the gate, and then the police know something's weird going on. So they grab him, they pull him down, they see 13 pounds of marijuana. And so they arrest him, and he is charged with, it's a, it's a felony, because the, having 13 pounds, that's possession with the intent to sell. So now he is broken into police headquarters with the evidence on his back that will convict him. And Jesus is saying, that's what you do when you show up at church with a murderous heart. That's why it would be better for you to not even make your offering at the altar, but go back and reconcile before you show up to make your offering because you have just broken into police headquarters with murder on your record And you think the judge is going to turn a blind eye? Do not underestimate the righteousness and the wrath of God. It should be weighing heavy on us. The law is harder to keep than we think. It's impossible to keep. No anger. No bitterness. No calling a person an idiot when they cut me off. And if I do then it is as if I've broken into police headquarters with 13 pounds of marijuana on my back. I brought my own evidence before the judge, and he has nothing to do but to convict me. Jesus is like Bill Cosby and says, you think it's no problem? It's a big problem. You think you can get into heaven by keeping the law? Let's run through this budget. How do you stack up? And we should be feeling not very well. Not very well at all. Is there any hope? Is there any hope whatsoever for you and me? Any hope? Go back and look one more time at verse 17. This is the exciting part of the passage. Before Jesus took away all of our hope and our own righteousness, he reminded us something very neat. Don't think that I've come to destroy the law or the prophets. I haven't come to destroy, but I have come to fulfill them. Isn't that neat? I haven't come to destroy, but I have come to fulfill them. Do you know that Jesus is the only person ever who has not had a murderous heart? Who could go to the altar and make a sacrifice and not think, I really have somebody back home that I need to make restitution with first. Jesus is the only person ever who has fulfilled the law perfectly. This is a major spoiler to the end of the sermon, but I I just look real quick at the end of the sermon. Matthew chapter 7. After Jesus makes his whole big sermon on how do we get to heaven, he's going to give you a choice. He says, therefore, whoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken 
him unto a wise man, which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and it beat upon the house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. But everyone who heareth these things of mine, and doth doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. I think Jesus is asking us in our passage, and he's going to ask us again at the end of the sermon, what's your foundation? It's absolutely true that no one will get into the kingdom of heaven without keeping the law. How, how well do we have to keep it? Matthew five forty eight. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. If your foundation is your righteousness, your ability to keep the law, then you need to do some budgeting. Can you keep that law perfect, without flaw, without error? Is that the foundation you're going to rest your desires to get into the kingdom of heaven on? There is another foundation, and that foundation is the one who did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it, and who did fulfill it perfectly. There is another foundation, and that is Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And when the winds come and the rains fall, that foundation won't be knocked over. That house will stand because he has never broken the law even one jot or one tittle of the law. He has perfectly kept the law. You and I haven't. But Jesus has. How do you respond to a message like this? How do you respond to this passage? Let me suggest just two possibilities. The first is that every single person in this room has to decide what's my foundation. If I were to die right now and were to stand before Jesus and he says, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Would you say, I've tried to keep the law. I've been a good man. I've never murdered anybody. I've never committed adultery. I've never done this. I've never done that. Would you list your goodness as your criteria for getting into heaven? Jesus says, that's a horrible foundation. Would you instead, even tonight, say, I want a different foundation? I want to trust the perfect righteousness, the perfect law-keeping ability of Jesus instead of my own. I think that's the first thing we should all do in response to this passage. I think there's another thing that we all need to do, and that is most of us are tempted to take the law less seriously than God does. Most of us are tempted, just like me, when, I cut, when this person cut me off in the drive-thru and I call them an idiot, to think that's just a little white sin. It's not a big deal. But God doesn't take my sin lightly. John Owen, he wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin, and I think it's one of the best ever on dealing with sin. But he says this line, Always be killing sin, or it will be killing you. 
always be killing sin or it will be killing you. I think that if we wrestle with Jesus' words tonight and we understand both the, sever- the likelihood of us sinning and the severity of the consequences of that, then we're going to have to take a serious warlike stance against our own sin. No winking at our sin. No thinking, yeah, I shouldn't have done it, but it's not as bad as what most people are doing. We have to take serious steps to kill the sin that's in our lives. That means repenting quickly. And that means begging God to change my heart. I know that I have a murderous heart, but I have to beg God, take that out of my heart. Now, if we had walked through this passage, we could have said the same thing about lust, right? You think, well, I'm okay because I've never committed adultery. Jesus would say, if you've ever looked lustfully on a woman, then it's as if you've committed adultery in your heart. We have to go to war against the lust in our hearts. It cannot stay if we're going to take Jesus seriously here. The same thing is true about our marriages. The same thing is true about our honesty, right? It's not just never tell a bold-faced lie. No one should ever doubt anything you say because they know that you're not a trickster. You're not manipulating the system. You are completely reliable in everything you say because God is completely reliable in everything he says. Be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We have to take serious our sin and get it out. Kill it at its root. The music team wants to come up. I'm going to pray that God will first open our eyes to our inability to keep the law so that we'll put all of our trust and our hopes in the righteousness of Jesus. Secondly, I'm going to pray that Jesus will open our eyes to our own sin and give us the conviction to fight it and to root it out, to kill the sin before it kills us. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask that you will use it to change our hearts. Give us appropriate fear of your law and of your righteousness and of your wrath. And give us appropriate hope in the fact that you've kept the law where we can't. Teach us to be people who love you by trusting you and living lives that look like yours. We pray this in your name. Amen.